Please bow your heads for the prayer for illumination. Gracious Lord, you have decided to teach us your wisdom from our first days. You have taught us from the beginning. We need your continued teaching to grow us in your grace. Use your word to convict us, to instruct us, and to lead our spirit. May scripture humble us that we may teach one another your ways and turn one another's hearts back to you. Amen. Today's Old Testament reading is taken from Psalm 51, verses 10 to 19. It can be found on, your pa- on pages 573 to 574 of the Red Bibles. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach, your, I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God. You are God, you who are God my Savior, and my tongue will sing your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do take pleasure in you do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit a broken and contrite heart, you, God, will not despise. May it please you to prosper Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous, in burnt offerings offered whole, then booze will be offered in your altar. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. It's a privilege to be back here on such a beautiful October day. Freni and I have been living in the United States for about five years now, and we've enjoyed the way the Lord has worked it out for us to get back to visit family and friends about once a year since that time. We spent the jet lag portion of our two-week trip in Canton Bern with her family, and then a couple days ago came over here to Zurich, and we're enjoying seeing friends being with you this morning, and then we'll be flying back to Atlanta on Tuesday, according to plan. We continue to work with Operation Mobilization. Just a brief bit about us, for those of you who don't know us, is in the bulletin. December will be 42 years for me with OM, Freni a little bit less than that from the time I got out of university. And of course, she was a nurse here in Switzerland before she joined our mission. No false witness, says the Ninth Commandment. Speak the truth to one another. In love, says Paul in Ephesians 4. I think on a beautiful day like this, I could win a number of hearts by just giving the three-word application, just do it, pronounce the benediction, and we go. But I think Andy wants me to say a little bit more than that. Some of you, um, I'm not sure if you were speaking the truth to me this morning, because several of you said, you know, David, you haven't changed a bit. Well, I'm not so sure about that. I mean, in terms of my gray hair, I just pull it out, so I don't have any. 
But the fact is, and I won't mention anybody by name like Magnus, there are a few more gray hairs that some of us are having in uh, various parts of our mustache and top of our head and so on. So we are changing, but speaking the truth in love, is it always just the detailed, clear courtroom type facts or is there something different about that as well? Sometimes it actually gets a bit more complicated and especially speaking the truth in love in an intercultural group like we have among us here. Many years ago, I was in Ecuador. I grew up in Colombia in South America. I went to high school in Ecuador, the next country south, and I was back working with Operation Mobilization on a project there. We were making some arrangements with uh, another organization, and I had made some mistakes. I know that is true, but we were trying to work it out so that something good was going to come together in terms of our shared project. I had a friend who was with me. He was a, a German man. A very brilliant man as well. Um, And we went into a meeting with this pastor of this other organization. And as we came out, I said, well, it's not going to work. He said no. And my German friend said, but he said yes. I said, no. He said no. He said, he said yes. I said, no. He said no. He said, David, you speak far better Spanish than me, but he said si. And si is yes, and no is no. He said si. He said yes. I said, yeah. But everything else he said was no. He said no. My friend said with a little bit of ethnocentrism, which I think he's lost since then, when will these people ever learn to tell the truth? He had simply missed the big picture of communication that was going on there, more than just the simple words that had been stated. I'm not a big movie fan, but I do enjoy some films, and at times, some of them have a lasting influence on me or raise, uh, raise questions that come up and linger in my mind. In fact, two movies I saw about 10 years ago had such an impact that I even thought of them in preparing for this message. Do you remember The Life of Pi, Jan Martel's book? And yes, the book was much better than the movie, as usual. Um, Pi is an Indian zookeeper's son, and Freni and our youngest daughter Sarah and I have been to the zoo in Puducherry, where the story supposedly begins. Uh, Pai is an Indian zookeeper's son, and he tells of his ventures after a harrowing shipwreck, crossing the Pacific with a wild uh, band of, of animals who eventually succumb to the elements or eat each other. Or when you get to the end of the story, you remember, were they really wild animals, or were they sometimes deranged sailors that were on the lifeboats as they crossed and floated across the Pacific together? In the final episode of the book and of the movie, and again, the book is better, we're taken back to Pi's current home in Canada, where he, as narrator of the story, reminds us, because we probably have forgotten, that the book, the story, was really about questions about the existence of God and faith and reality. The haunting question of what really happened, animals or sadistic sailors, is countered with another question. Which was the better story? Which was the better story? For some, like Jan Martel, God may or he may not exist. And universal truth, excuse me, unvarnished truth, may be cold, perhaps brutal, not very comforting. What seems to matter most is the story. Not just did we enjoy it, but did it inspire us? Did it help us? Did it help us become better people? Another movie that I really didn't like, but I also really did like, so... I I mentioned the movie with some caveats, there are bad parts to it as well, was Ricky Gervais' 2009 movie, The Invention of Lying. Gervais' character lives in a world where lying has not been invented. Nobody can lie. Everybody always tells the truth. 
The movie seems to ask us, is this the kind of the world that we would really want? Once Gervais' character discovers that he can lie, of course, he uses it to great personal advantage. Some of it is humorous, like when his wife, toward the end of the movie, cooks a terrible meal, and he tells her how wonderful it was, and she has no idea, of course, that he's just trying to make her happy. The other, though, has to do with some of the advertising, if you remember some of these shots, where, for example, the car salesman says, you don't really need this new car, we just want your money. But the movie's version of truth-telling is harsh, it's thoughtless. People greet each other with what we would call cold, heartless statements about how each other looks. When a man wants to invite a woman out for coffee, there's none of the nuanced, subtle communication. It's on both sides, simply about how they both thinking the movie, or sorry, the evening might actually end. But the movie fails even more by equating truth with a lack of creativity. There is no subtlety. There are no nuances. There's no, um, there's no crea creation or symbolism. Television shows are just documentaries, sort of like Soviet-era documentaries, which are just bro brute facts with no creative things there. The invention of lying raises interesting questions, and the fact that it keeps coming to my mind 10 years after I saw it shows how well those questions were asked, but it fails in the answers it provides. When it comes to the truth and how we tell the truth to each other, is it just cold facts? Should it always be, as in an American courtroom, the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? Or without lying and remaining faithful to the truth, is there a place for timing, a place for politeness, a place for sensitivity, a place for creativity? So as we turn to our passage this morning from Ephesians, I think we'll find a more satisfying conclusion to the questions that were posed by those movies and others that might be our mind. Truth matters, and truth is vital. The truth revealed in Jesus Christ is not just cold, brutal, hard facts, but it is warm, it is caring, it's renewing, and it's transforming. It's truth that sets us free. Free to be renewed in our relationship with God and with one another. And that whole wonderful story, the far better story, that God is telling us and that we are part of, it's incredibly creative. At times, the way it's told, it's full of vivid symbolism. We're not talking about a collection of somewhat tired, hard-to-understand philosophical statements. God has revealed himself from the farthest heavens to subatomic particles. He's revealed himself in our hearts. And he's revealed himself through the beautiful story of his passionate redeeming love, a story that stretches from the garden through the cross to new, the New Jerusalem. In Ephesians 4, Paul has, and you can turn if you'd like in your pew Bibles to uh, page 1175 if you'd like, to Ephesians chapter 4. Paul is switching from the first half of the letter where he has been talking about how we are redeemed, set free, relating to God by grace. He talks about the good works that we have been prepared by God to walk in. He talks about how the church is, it's through the church that God is revealing his wisdom to the principalities and powers. In 319, he talks about the multidimensional fullness of God's love that we can know and that in Christ we can do far more than all we ask or think. And then with those things in mind, chapter 4 begins with the word, therefore. Therefore. And so I'm going to read a little bit more than what's mentioned in your bulletin. I'm going to read verses 1 through 6, then 11 to 17, and verses 25 to 29. Ephesians 4, 1 through 6. As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. Be completely humble and gentle. 
Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And then verse 11. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love. Speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become, in every respect, the mature body of him who is the head, that is, Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. So I tell you this, and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. And down to verse 25. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor. For we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who's been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands, that they may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your words. And I pray now that the words that I will share would indeed be anointed by you and speak to each of our hearts this morning in the areas we need to hear from you. In Jesus' name, amen. The truth about Jesus matters. Chapter 4, verse 15, one of the verses we just read. The truth about Jesus matters. False teaching was a problem for the early Christians, and it has been ever since. Much of the content of the New Testament are passages that have to do with setting right false teaching, something that Peter, in 2 Peter 2, says attributes to shameful, greedy teachers who exploit their followers with made-up stories. With this imminent danger for the believers, Paul points to the vital importance of speaking the truth to each other. Speaking the truth to each other, truth that helps us reach unity and maturity in the faith, is based on knowledge of the Son of God, keeps us from being tossed about like a small boat of faith in a storm of ideas, and is enhanced by the people God has specially gifted to help pastor and to teach us. But even though Paul could argue with great academic prowess before the Areopagus or in Athens, or before the kings and the rulers that he met, he insisted that speaking the truth, and that includes proclaiming to others the truth about Jesus, must be done in love. But what does that mean? Speaking the truth, in, speaking the truth matters, the truth about Jesus. But how we speak the truth matters, speaking the truth in love. Let's think back for a moment to how Jesus himself spoke the truth, because we would assume that he was always speaking the truth in love. We're not going to take the time to read back through the various gospel passages. You can let your mind wander a little bit from what I'm saying, and you can think a bit of, your, of what you would uh, consider yourself of how Jesus spoke the truth in love. But there 
are a number of examples, just to quickly mention. John chapter 2, verse 24 and 25, says that Jesus didn't always say everything. He held himself back, he held himself back from some people because he knew what was in their hearts. Luke 5, the story of the paralytic being lowered down through the roof of the house, and many other places. Jesus spoke with deeds before he spoke with words. Mark 4, Jesus explained why, explains why he preaches or teaches in parables. It was so that those who have hearing ears would hear and understand, even if those who were hard-hearted did not understand what he was saying. Matthew 9.36, he spoke out of compassion, and so he spoke words of teaching and consolation. John 7.17, he did not speak on his own authority, but he spoke on the authority of God the Father who had sent him. And then we see in Luke 13.34 and 35, Jesus speaking with incredible sorrow for Jerusalem, but in that same setting as related by Matthew 23, very shortly after he speaks very strong words of condemnation for those who had decisively rejected him. And if we looked more through the stories of his encounters with the 12 and the 72 and others, we see him teaching, encouraging, confronting, cajoling, challenging, uh, rebuking, building them up in their faith, helping them in their weakness. Of course, when it came to issues of pride, he decisively confronted their sin. In all this, timing was very important. He didn't say as much to the crowds as he said to Peter, James, and John, and various groups in between. He didn't say everything at first. He let time go on as he built up their knowledge and their understanding. If there's any character in the Bible I would like to be, whether it's an Easter drama or in real life, it would be Cleopas, because Cleopas and his partner walking along the Emmaus Road, they got perhaps the most complete truth-telling about Jesus from Jesus himself, as after the resurrection he explained to them how the whole scriptures of the old, what we call the Old Testament pointed to him. So as we speak in the truth, speak the truth in love to one another, some of these things should apply, well, all of these things should apply to us as well. But some of them briefly, the issue of timing. There's an urgency about the gospel. Now is the day of salvation, Paul writes, but Jesus was never pushy. He stands at the door knocking. And I think each of us would recognize as we have gone through times of bereavement or sorrow, personal tragedy or crisis, we all know that sometimes such an opportunity or such an event provides an opportunity for a word, a, a strong word from God. But other times, anger, bitterness, fear prevail, and it's better just to be there in silence, and words can come later. But when it comes to speaking the truth about Jesus, especially to our non-believing friends, probably most of us fail because when the time is right, we fail to actually speak out rather than speaking out boldly when the time is wrong. We need discernment when it comes to timing as well. But in other things of life, timing matters as we speak the truth to each other. Different stages of life, what we tell to children and how we say it to them may be different than what we would say to someone who is a bit older. What we say in a time of crisis or finding the appropriate time to speak that truth. Whether it's with parents, with children, husband or wife, we all know there are some things that maybe we should just wait a little bit on the timing. It may be true, but to say it in love, we should be thoughtful of timing. A kind word of encouragement is probably always welcome, but as Proverbs 25.11 says, a word should be fitly spoken, 
And so the timing of our words should be such that they fit in as we speak the truth to one another in love. Jesus was sensitive to his audience. He said different things to different people in in different settings as well. And here is where politeness and kindness fits in with each other as we talk to each other, being sensitive to them. The idea of cultural sensitivity is an important theme in how we communicate the good news to people who do not yet know Jesus. But what about how we speak to one another? This is where I think my friend in, in Ecuador years ago, he failed because, one, there was a cultural insensitivity. He didn't pick up the other signals of the full communication that was going on. And he had also misinterpreted Jesus' statement that we should let our yes be yes and our no be no. That wasn't talking about cold, hard facts. That was talking about avoiding complicated oath-swearing and legalese so we could get out of doing something that we really weren't committing to do, even though the contract looked like we were saying that we were actually saying yes, when in fact we had all sorts of escape clauses to get out of our commitment. I think of a slightly humorous situation about speaking the truth in love that happened in our apartment in Greifensee a few years ago. Fereni and I were hosting a young man from Pakistan, many years younger than us, and he came and he was there with us for about a week. So Fereni would ask him, would you like some tea? Oh, yes. Uh, Or would you like some coffee? Oh, that would be nice. Well, would you like tea or would you like coffee? Yes. And then she would ask him, what would you like for breakfast? Would you like cereal? Oh, fine. Would you like eggs? Oh, yes. Would you like... Anyway, finally she realized, and by a couple of days later we got this settled, she simply made tea or coffee and put it out there. And for breakfast she just put several things on the table and he took whatever he wanted to take. The point was he, as a young man from Pakistan, and were we maybe 30 years older than him, he simply could not tell us, even in love, what he actually wanted. He wasn't able to do that. In another setting that was a bit more complicated, when I was working on my doctoral studies, I had a neighbor and we were working on a paper together on intercultural values, a paper that got published later in a, in a journal and in a, in a book. Um, he was a Korean man, and I saw him walk into his apartment next door to mine, and so I, a couple minutes later, gave him a call because I needed to check with him on this project we were working on together. His son picked up the phone, a teenage young man, and he said to me, oh, my dad's not in. And I thought, that's strange. I just saw him go in. There's virtually no way he could have gotten out without my... Anyway. So I called back later and we went ahead. But since we were working on a paper on intercultural values, I said, okay, Yong, you need to explain something to me. If, if, what's going on? I know you were in the apartment, so why did your son say that? He said, oh, don't you get it? I had gone in, I'd taken a nap. I told him I didn't want to be disturbed for an hour. For my son to have said, I'm not available for you, would have been so dishonoring. He simply couldn't tell you that he was unavailable. That would have brought shame on us that we did not honor you. Interesting. My son would have just said, Dad's taking a nap. Can you call back in an hour? Well, he was three years old at the time, so he wouldn't have said that, but later on he probably would have said that. In these intercultural settings that we face, some of us, maybe if you're European or North American, you struggle with that response, and I'm not saying I'm totally comfortable with that as well. But as we speak the truth to one another in love, Do we understand some of the differences? Communication is more than just the black and white words that we write or we speak. Do we truly understand? Do we truly seek to honor the other person with what we have to say? Or it could be something, and I have seen this happen in other international churches I've been part of, but it was uh, 
it was what wasn't in a church, but it was a situation where there was a friend of mine, an Asian, was a clear, highly qualified candidate for a leadership position. But he didn't get the job. And I was talking to him later. I said, hey, what's going on? I thought, why didn't you take the job? He said, well, I said, no, come on, tell me. Why did, didn't they ask you? He said, yes. I said, well, what did you say? I said, no. I said, but didn't you want to do the job? And he said, well, they only asked once. They only asked once. For him, it would have been utterly impossible. It would have been so greedy, so power-grabbing to say yes on the first answer or the first request. The second time, he might have mildly expressed some interest. Finally, the third time, he would have said what was really in his heart, that he really was interested in taking the job. I won't speak to IPC, but I have seen this in other international churches I've been part of. A big misunderstanding among us where those of us who are very indirect and reserved in our speech very much miscommunicate with those of us who are more direct and open and one time and done in our speech. We need to not just speak with love, we need to listen with love. We need to listen with intercultural understanding. Speaking the truth in love also has to do with the things that we don't say, things that we don't mention. Like, I really shouldn't have mentioned that gray hair in Magnus's mustache. That was very inappropriate. Sorry, Magnus, I should not have done that earlier on. A thousand pardons with all. <laughs> there are some things, though, that we, I know him well enough that I think I, our friendship will survive. Um, there are some things that we simply don't say. Some things we don't say, or the right person should say it, not the wrong person. We've been hosted by many wonderful people. We've had very good meals, and we appreciate that. Now, if someone asked me, as we're leaving, I, I would say, oh, the meal was so wonderful, and so on, so that would be great. But if it was our house, the people would say the same, oh, Franny, that was a wonderful meal, and so on. But afterwards, I might say to her, you know, honey, that was good, but next time, maybe a little bit less salt. Or she might say to me, you know, you cooked the steak just a little bit too long. Or, but we would be the appropriate person to say something. The guest who's just come, that might not be an appropriate thing. There's things like that that we shouldn't say. There's some things that we shouldn't say to children. But we should say, the right person should say it at the right time. Speaking the truth in love, Paul says, includes things we are not to say. 425, falsehood. 4.29, evil talk, instead what builds up. 5.3, we're not even to mention sexual impurity, covetous, filthiness, silly talk, and levity. 5.12, it's a shame to even speak of what such people are doing in secret. But can we actually do that in today's world? Can we never mention that? I have a good friend here with us today. We've known each other 40 years. He's a clinical psychologist. I'm sure that in his clinical practice, those things have to come up. And so a literal reading of the text would not work very well. My son is a defense attorney. I have friends who are involved in anti-trafficking. There are some things that you, they must talk about it in some situations. I think Paul's point here, though, is this doesn't become the center of our conversation. It's not the titillating, exciting, gossipy, or whatever other form where we get pleasure of joining in. Instead, Paul tells us in 19 and 20 that we are addressed one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with all our hearts, always and for everything giving thanks in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God the Father. Speaking the truth in love then reveals to others that we are Jesus' disciples. John 13, 34, and 35, which I believe Andy has used as the basis for this whole series. Love one another, that the world will know that you are my disciples.
They will know that we are his disciples because the truth we tell points to Jesus. And I'll just leave that point unexpanded. And another point, just to briefly mention, because of the way we speak about Jesus, not with pride and arrogance, but with humble confidence, with compassionate concern. Our words matter, but our actions that go with our words are part of that communication. But also they will know we are disciples of Jesus, followers of Jesus, because they will hear our day-to-day speech. You know, it's interesting, in the New Testament, we get virtually nothing of day-to-day conversation. There's none of the small table talk, how is the weather, what are the roads like, how's your mother-in-law doing sort of a thing. The table talk that's there is pretty much related, very condensed, to tell us truth about Jesus. I'm not sure, actually, I would like a script for my conversation. There might be some of my jokes I wouldn't be able to tell anymore, but anyway. Um, What we are told, though, 1 Thessalonians 4.12, is that we are to live a quiet life, working with our hands to gain the respect of outsiders. Colossians 4.6, that our conversation is to be seasoned with salt so that we know how to answer everyone. Telling the truth to one another in love. I think of a friend who told me of a movement. And it's amazing how there are various movements from China all the way to Central and Southern Africa, places where Jesus has not been known before, and people coming to faith and growing in numbers and numbers. And, And one of the key factors in these movements that are growing, they don't look Christian on the outside necessarily, but they're deeply following Jesus. But it has to do with taking the scripture, taking God's word, in a way that John Wesley used, in a way the early church used. Reading the scripture to each other, learning it well enough they can recite a passage, maybe not from memory, but they recite the passage back to each other. And then they say, what does that mean? And then they go out and do it. A man told me of a story from a place in a region of Africa, was a largely Muslim setting. There had been a number who had come to faith in Jesus and they were still meeting together. The men would sit on one side, the women on the other, or in the back, the women still veiled and so on. And they just introduced the the scriptures, the New Testament, in sort of an Arabic-style script, which was much more readable for the people. Then he went away. Amazing, God can do wonderful things, even when a foreign Western missionary is not present, but it happens. He went away, and he came back three or four months later. And he came to the church service, whatever they called it. They came together, and the men and women were together. And the women weren't wearing veils. And he thought, this is interesting. What's happened? Well, afterwards, he was speaking to a few of the elders of this group, and he he was curious, and he held back, but finally, they said, by the way, while you were away, we took those passages that you've printed now and published for us, and we were reading them. We discovered something interesting. Women are created in the image of God as well. God loves women too. In fact, they're equal to us. We men are no better than they are. So we thought, if that's what the Bible says, we need to change. And so the women took off their veils in the church service. I think they still did out in public because of other pressures, but they did that. They met together. They had told the truth to one another in love from the word of God. And that's how that was growing. And the people, the public around them, knew that the changes were taking place because they were followers of Jesus. Speaking the truth, not bearing false witness, is the ninth commandment given through Moses. Those Old Testament commands, you shall, become New Testament promises. You can and you will. 
Yes, Paul does command us to speak the truth in love, but it's a command that comes with a promise that by the grace of God and the enabling of the Holy Spirit, we can speak the truth in love. By the grace of God and the enabling of the Holy Spirit, we will speak the truth in love to one another. And as we do, Paul says, we will grow up into maturity and unity, attaining to the full measure of the fullness of Christ in us. So in closing, speak the truth to one another in love. Not just a better story, but God's story revealed to us in his word and through Jesus Christ and continually revealed in our own lives. And don't tell the truth not just merely as hard, cold facts, but truth that builds up, truth that encourages, truth that is told in a way that's sensitive to how and when we say it and not just what we say.